Uh, hi, it's me again, <laughs> third time. Uh, welcome to Valley Bible Church, where every Sunday is super, right? Yeah, we got a bit of a problem. This is the first time that I've been here at Valley Bible Church where we have a conflict because we have an evening service now. So, anybody want to preach tonight? No, I'm. <laughs> I will be here this evening. I don't know how many of uh, our regulars will be, but we hope that they will be faithful. Um, it's good to see you this morning. Uh, I invite you, if you have your Bibles or some form of that, uh, digital, um, would you turn to John chapter 12, and we are going to read this morning verses 37 through 50. John chapter 12, verses 37 through 50, and we believe that the Word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so in honor to give reading, uh, honor to his Word, would you stand as we read it together? John 12, beginning in verse 37. But though he had performed performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, The things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. And God's people said, Amen. Be seated and would you pray with me, please. Father, we cry out with Isaiah this morning, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. That is who you are. We thank you, Father, for piercing the darkness in which we live We know that the ruler of this world has been cast out, but not fully, and we do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against an enemy. And we put on the full armor of God this morning. We shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. May we be peacemakers, gospel proclaimers. We gird ourselves with truth, for Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And he said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And he sent the spirit of truth. 
We have the truth, and so we stand in it and gird ourselves with it. Lord, we put on the breastplate of righteousness, for we cannot stand in our own righteousness, but we gladly accept the completed righteousness of Christ, that we are justified by faith in him. And the helmet of salvation we put on, may we, may we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We have the mind of Christ, and help us to think that way and renew our minds in truth. We take up the shield of faith for our trust is in you only to stand against the flaming missiles of the evil one. The sword of the spirit, which is your word, we thank you for its power that it cuts both ways and that it is eternal. And so, Lord God, we pray as a God of peace that you would crush the enemy under our feet. We stand in you with all prayer and petition for one another. Guide us into truth this morning in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Warnings are a good thing, right? When you're warned about something beforehand, sometimes I will be driving with my wife, and she will say, are you going to get some gas? You know, why, first of all, why is she paying attention to why I'm, how I'm driving? You know, but <clears throat> are you going to get some gas? And I'll say, well, why do you say that? Because, well, because the light is on. You know, and what do we say to that, guys? We it's fine. Yeah, we've got 32 miles, 42 miles, whatever it is. You can still have a couple of gallons left in the tank. Yeah, it's fine. But she's right. Honestly, there's there's a limited time by which I must get gas. I must refuel, and that's the way warnings usually are. Uh, that uh, they're they're time sensitive, and we have to respond to them. And we see a, a, a warning in our passage this morning that is time-sensitive that we have to respond to. Um, our passage this morning has two sections, as you may have noticed as we read it. The first section is, is commentary by John, John's gospel. Uh, they're not the words of Jesus. They are the words of John talking about um, kind of summarizing the, the ministry of Christ. He did many, many miracles, and yet people weren't believing in him. This is, by the way, the the end of the public ministry of Jesus that we just read right here. In chapter 13, we're going to come up to in a few weeks, longer than I thought, but in a few weeks, we're going to come up to chapter 13. And, um, and Jesus is going to spend all this time in the upper room with his disciples, teaching them, holding them close, telling them all the things they need to know before he dies and goes away. And so this is going to be the last of the public teaching of Christ in verses 44 through 50. And we don't know exactly when that occurred. But the only public words that Jesus will speak after this that I'm aware of are at his trial and on the cross. So this is kind of the, the final notice that he is giving in verses 44 through 50. So um, the book of John is really nothing more and a lot more than just it is an appeal to believe in Jesus for eternal life. You've seen that over and over and over again. And Jesus is giving the final appeal, and we see that in this passage. I want us to review for just a minute um, a few verses from last week, verses 35 through 36, that say this, So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, 
believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These, these things Jesus spoke and he went away and he hid himself from them. We see two things. There are many more, but there are two things I want you to focus upon. We see a warning. There is a time limit. For a little while longer, walk while you have the light. Verse 36, while you have the light. While you have the light, respond lest you be overtaken by darkness. It's a warning. You don't have forever. You only have, they only had while Jesus was there. We don't have forever to believe only the time that we have on this earth. And Jesus was talking about his time on this earth. So we see a warning, but we also see an invitation. Believe. While you have the light, believe. It's an imperative. It's a command. You must believe. The warning is you got to get at it because you don't have forever. You're going to run out of gas. The light is on. You're being warned. But you must believe now. While you have the opportunity, because you may lose the opportunity, even if you are here today and you do not know Christ and you keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off, you might lose the opportunity to believe. And that's the point of what Jesus is saying. The last part of verse 36, these things Jesus spoke and he went away and he hid himself from them. Uh, Interesting, we don't know where he went, but it portends of what comes next in verses 38 through 40 because we're going to see this morning that the Lord would hide the truth from Israel. Just as Jesus is hiding from those people, the Lord is going to hide from the eyes of Israel and the perception that Jesus is the Messiah. They're not going to be able to see it because God is hiding it from them. Of course, the big question is, why? Why would he do that? Well, we hope to clear that up this morning. So a warning and an invitation. First of all, we see the warning in verses 37 through 43. The warning is this, respond to the light you are given, lest you be left in the darkness. Do not reject what God has made clear. And he has made it clear. He has given, particularly those of us who live in the United States of America, those of us who are in this room, even if you don't know him, he has given you a lot of light, a lot of revelation, a lot of opportunities So respond to that, because if you don't, you might be left in darkness. That might be where you end up. It's a a warning. And the warning is very clear. Verse 37, he says, But though he had performed so many signs, notice that, though he had performed so many signs before them in their face, Right in front of them, they had witnessed it. They're not saying if he didn't happen. Many, many signs right before their very eyes, yet they were not believing in him. What? Why would they not? This is a summary statement of the ministry of Jesus at this point by John. Jesus came to do all these signs, and he did all these signs. And what happened? Nobody believed, or very few. They're not saying that they didn't happen. They just didn't believe in him. This is particularly uh, troubling when you think about the purpose of the book. We have come to this before. Let me give you uh, John 20, 30 and 31 again. It says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed 
in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, not just the seven that are listed in John, but he did many, many more. But these that John recorded, these seven, were written for a purpose so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It's the purpose of the book. It seems like a grand failure at this point, right? The purpose of the book was Jesus to perform all these signs that the people would believe. He's performed all these signs and nobody's believing. Uh, this, uh, John is a master of irony. And I think this is the, uh, the greatest ironies of the gospel. That the very purpose of the book that many people would believe that Jesus was, uh, was the Messiah because he did these miracles is not being believed by those who witnessed those miracles. So what gives? Well, first and foremost, those who choose darkness over light are only given more darkness. When you choose the darkness over the light, you get more darkness. What does darkness mean? It means evil, sin, unrighteousness, etc., etc., etc. When that's what you choose, when that's what one chooses, it's that, that's what one chooses to feed on and believe in. Why would you be surprised that you get more of that? that you get more darkness. The Jews of Jesus' day had chosen what? Light or darkness? Darkness over light, even though he was right in front of them. They had chosen darkness over light. And verse 38 tells us why. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is that grand chapter that begins the story of the suffering servant. Uh, Isaiah 53 is uh, is the one that says, uh, He grew up before us like a tender shoot, like a root out of a parched land. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Isaiah prophesying how the Messiah will be rejected on that day when he comes to this earth. And that's exactly what happened. Who has believed our report, the message? Jesus came and he gave a message, many, many words. And to whom he revealed the arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord is the power of God. And Jesus has showed his guns, in a sense, in all the powerful workings and the miraculous workings. The power of God demonstrated the arm of God in Messiah in all these workings, all of these signs, and all of his teaching. And people say... Yeah. Whatever. Their unbelief was to fulfill the prophecy that few would believe in the Lord's message and power. And we see it being fulfilled when, when John is telling us that. It's being fulfilled at that moment. Isaiah was saying hundreds of years before, Messiah will come and work miracles and he will give a message and he will be rejected. People will not believe in him. And this is exactly what has happened. But it gets worse. The reason is given in verses 39 through 40. 
for this reason, that it was forecast, that it was prophesied. They could not believe. They weren't able. Not they chose not to, but they were not able to believe. And it explains why. For Isaiah, again, and this is in Isaiah chapter 6. By the way, my favorite chapters, I don't know what yours are, of Isaiah chapter 6, 53, and 40. Anybody have any more? Anyway, that's my favorite. Chapter 6. For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. God prevented them from seeing the point of the miracles, seeing that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. By the way, this this phrase from Isaiah 6 is so important that it's repeated in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, all the historical writings of the New Testament. You very rarely see something in all four Gospels. Remember, John's material is pretty much um, um, material that's his own, so we we always take note when we see something that John includes that the other Gospels do, and this is one of those from Isaiah chapter 6. Because it is foundational to understanding Israel and the gospel. We have to understand Isaiah 6 and what, God, what the Lord was talking about in Isaiah 6 to understand how the gospel has come to us. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Isaiah 6. And let me read this portion because I think it's important for us to, to look at it. Isaiah 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. This is the word Adonai here, not the word Yahweh. Sitting on a throne. So he sees a person, some kind of a person, sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. He sees some kind of a personage sitting on a throne, and there's a a, a robe that he wears that goes all the way through this temple, heavenly. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another in this antiphonal song, Holy, 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 kadosh, 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 is the Yahweh of hosts, the Lord Sabaoth, the army of heaven. Yahweh Sabaoth, the whole earth is full of his glory. At that time, the whole earth is full of the glory of God. The light, the revelation of God is in the entire earth. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke, the picture of this glory. Then I said, "Uh oh, basically that's what he says. Woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. The people of Israel that were apostate, that had rejected their God. And he is identifying with their sin and their rejection. For my eyes have seen the king, king, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. I have seen him. And why is he he afraid that uh, woe is me for I'm ruined? 
He's thinking no one can see God and live, and I just I ain't seen God. He thinks he's going to be incinerated, probably. We'll come back to that later. One of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. The altar is the place of sacrifice, and sacrifice is the place of cleansing and forgiveness. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven, just like happens to us. From the altar of Christ takes away our sin. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I say, this, this, these, this is the, 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 the great missionary text, right? Here I am, send me. But oftentimes they don't read the rest of what it says. Because Isaiah is called to a very unsuccessful ministry. Very unfruitful ministry. He said, go and tell this people. Yeah, I'm going. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see me with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And we don't want that. Return and be healed. By the way, those two Hebrew words, return and heal, uh, mean to, to, to return, to go back. And to be restored, not healing and salvation, not healing in terms of uh, physical healing, but that the nation would turn back to God and be restored to what they were called to because they had fallen away totally. Isaiah then asked this question, how long? Is this permanent? And he answered, until. There's a time limit. It's like there was a warning back in John. Um, while you have the opportunity, believe. Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate, God is going to judge. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And we'll come to that in a moment. Sounds quite harsh, does it not, all of this? Why would God do this? Why would God blind the eyes of Israel and those who are listening to Jesus and seeing his miracles? Is that fair? Is that harsh? Well, let me point out a couple of things. First and foremost... This refers to the nation of Israel as a collective, okay? This refers to the nation of Israel. They were God's chosen people. Verse 9, he said, go and tell this people. Verse 10, render the hearts of this people. This is the nation that had forsaken God. And so they are going to suffer the consequences for turning away. He has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes, perceive with their heart, and return to him and be restored. Because there's a time limit. Second of all, this is, as the commentators and the theologians say, a judicial hardening. In other words, it's God's discipline. He's passing judgment on the nation itself. It is discipline, 9 and 10. 
Keep on listening, do not perceive. Keep on looking, do not understand. The hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, etc. This was a generation, just like the generation that Jesus was facing, that had already rejected all previous revelation. Time after time after time. They had already chosen not to see what God had done. They had willfully hardened their own hearts to the message of the prophets. They rejected Moses. They rejected the prophets. Oh, yes, they gave lip service, Jesus said, but their hearts were far from him. So there's nothing new here that should be surprising. God was merely confirming in themselves the course that they had already taken as a nation. It reveals the normal working of God and the normal working of mankind. The normal working of God is to graciously reveal himself over and over and over again. The whole earth is full of his glory. We have the completed word. We have the church in the world. But the normal working of people is to reject revelation. It's just normal. It's People come by it naturally because they are depraved. Isaiah spoke of the nation Israel. These were people who had been given every opportunity. They had an overwhelming revelation and light given to them throughout many generations. I've been reading Genesis and Exodus right now. I'm in the middle of Exodus, and it just bowls me over. The very beginning, Adam and Eve, what do they do? They reject the revelation given to them. God walking with them. And they're rejected. They don't have a sinful heart yet. And then after that, all that leads up to Noah and the, the, uh, uh, the destruction by the flood. And Noah himself and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These, the chosen people of God. These are the ones he's working with. This is what he has to do, has to work with. These people that he chose, and at every turn, they reject the truth. God, in spite of that, keeps working out his plan of redemption. In spite of man's sin, and even uses man's sin. What a gracious God this is. They reject him at every opportunity. In the the book of, of Exodus, of course, Pharaoh already has a hard heart, but as he sees the miracles of God, what does he do? He hardens it further, and finally God says, well, I'll just confirm what you've already chosen. And the nation of Israel, they see all the miracles, and they, they see the, 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 the Passover and the, the killing of the firstborn, and they see the pillar of fire and cloud and the parting of the Red Sea and manna and every... And, incredible miracle, the arm of the Lord being revealed to them. And what do they say? Can't we get something else to eat? And they reject and reject and reject. And then going into the conquest, yes, God leads them, but were they obedient to all the truth of God? No. The time of the judges, God gives them judges and are in the land and they have this this spiraling, horrible time in which uh, uh, the, the, the surrounding nations that they didn't obey God to, to get rid of, they oppress them and they call out to the Lord, please help us, and the Lord helps us. And once they're helped, they just go back to, to idolatry and every other evil thing. We need a king. You get into the kingdom era, okay? Okay, I'll give you a king. He says, there's a good king. 
and there's a bad king, and there's a good king, and a bad king, and a bad king, and a good king, and a bad king, and a bad king, and a bad king, and a good king, and a bad king. You see the, the, the progression? Finally, God says, I've had enough. They, they rejected the Lord at every turn. They were idolaters. They were selfish. They were sinful. They defiled the very worship of God, the very altar of sacrifice. So please, don't for a minute think that God was being harsh with them for hardening their already hard hearts. As it turns out, it is a mercy. But it is also temporary. Because Isaiah said, how long? And he answered, until the judgment takes place. Verse 13, there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will be again subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Israel is going to be like a tree that's cut down, but there's still life in that stump. You ever have a stump and it starts to sprout? It's the holy seed. That is God's remnant. He does not totally cast Israel aside forever. He does not totally destroy them. He disciplines them in this judicial hardening for the purpose of the gospel. But it is, it is temporary. It results in a greater good, our redemption, because it is part of the plan from the very beginning. It results in the plan of redemption. Israel rejects the Messiah and is They crucify the Lamb of God, the Lord of glory. But he takes away the sin of the world. Why was he crucified? Because they rejected him. Why did they reject him? Because their hearts were were hard. Why were their hearts hard? Because they rejected everything that came before. If they had accepted the Messiah, there would be no redemption. It would just been a political guy. God's plan was the Lamb of God planned before the foundation of the world and he would die and rise again to take away the sin of the world. Had he not, there would be no church, there would be no Valley Bible Church, there would be no missions, there would be no gospel to take to the ends of the earth that Jesus, good news, died for your sins and rose again, victorious over sin and death. There would be no good news. And God knew the hearts of men, that they were sinful and capricious, but that's the material that he had to work with, and that's what he did work with for a greater good, the plan of redemption. It was severe, yes, but oh so merciful, right, to lead to our redemption. There was no repentance on the part of Israel, or understanding of sin and judgment. In Isaiah 6, his judgment is severe, but it is merciful, for without it there is no repentance, and without repentance there is no forgiveness, and there is no forgiveness without a forgiver who died for us. His purpose is forgiveness through redemption, but those who need redemption first must be broken to understand their need. Paul would write in Romans 11, he says this, I say then, they, that is Israel, they did not stumble so as to fall completely, that is. They didn't just 
fall and we're done with them. They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? He says, may it never be. Listen to this very carefully. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's how salvation came to us. The hardening of Israel. And he says, now if their transgression is riches for the world, the transgression, the hard-heartedness of Israel, if it is riches for the world and their failure to believe is riches for us, the Gentiles, then he circles back and he says, how much more will their fulfillment be? He's not done with Israel. He will come back and he is going to restore because they will return and he will restore. Through the Messiah. So those who choose darkness over light are only given more darkness. And we have to respond to that. In verse 41, um, John makes an interesting statement here where we see the glory of Messiah has been displayed in all the ages. Because he says, These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory. And he spoke of him. The glory of the Messiah, the glory of the second person of the Trinity, the glory of the Son of God has been displayed in all ages. His light has always been there in some form or fashion and is here today for those who are willing to see. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Spoke of whom? He was speaking of Jesus hundreds of years before when, when Isaiah says, I saw the glory of the Lord. Who's he talking about? I saw Jesus. I saw the second person of the Trinity. That's why he said, woe to me, for I am ruined, because I've just seen God. What he saw was an anthropomorphism. What he saw was a theophany, a manifestation of God by the second person of the Holy Spirit. On the throne, he saw a personage. In all of its glory, but it was, it was the Son of God. It was the Son of Man. He saw his glory, the glory of the Messiah, Jesus. He saw the glory of Yahweh, and the glory of Yahweh is the glory of Jesus because they are one and the same. They cannot be divided. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time until the only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him during the incarnation. Jesus came. We know what the Father is like. We know what the glory of God is like. We know what God is like because Jesus has explained him by living on this earth, by becoming one of us, God becoming a man. The theophanies of the Old Testament are the pre-incarnate logos, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And those theophanies are all the second person of the Trinity coming into history here, and into history here, and into history here, and into history here, that we might see the glory of God. So the Messiah was rejected long before he ever became a man, right? Long before. Glory of Messiah is displayed in all the ages. Colossians 1 says this of Jesus. For by him 
All things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He's everywhere. He is in natural revelation, general revelation. We have the final word spoken in God coming, but he has made his glory known in the sunrise and the sunset, in the mountains and the trees, in the creation of man, we see the image of God, so that Romans 1 says, you're without excuse. If you say that there's no God, if you say that God does not exist, have you not seen? Have you not heard? Oh, he exists. And you will be held accountable. Because those who reject, reject the light. But we see God is gracious also in, this, in the midst of this warning. He is gracious to always preserve a holy remnant in verses 42 through 43. God is gracious. Verse 42, Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Now, here's what it says. Now, look closely at the text. Nevertheless, many believed... And within the many, there was a subset of leaders. So many believed, and even of those who believed, there were some who were leaders. But because of because they were not, but they were because of the Pharisees, they would not publicly confess that they were followers of Jesus Christ or that they believed in Him. Why? Because they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. To be put out of the synagogue as a as a not only as a Jew but as a leader of the Jews. That's the, that's the worst thing that could happen to you. You're excommunicated from the community of faith. And ultimately it's because of this in verse 43, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. They did not fear God, they feared man. The big question is, are these people saved? Are these, we've seen spurious faith throughout the, the entire book of John. And uh, as you read the commentaries, it's kind of weighted toward, no, they're not. I wrestled with it all week. I could not get away from that word, nevertheless. Nevertheless. It's an adversative. You know what an adversative is? When someone says to you, hey, I really like what you're doing in your job, but... Hey, thanks for coming over and helping me with this. However, comma, you know, this is an adversative. But here's the thing about this word, nevertheless. This is the only place that it appears in the Greek New Testament. It is actually two adversatives put together. But yet, despite that, but yet, despite what? That God had hardened the hearts of Israel blinded their eyes, that they would not see, that they would not return to the Lord and be restored. In spite of that, yet despite, nevertheless, it's unbelieved. 
it reminds me of, of, of probably the mo- one of the most important passages to me in my life, um, Hebrews 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. I knew that. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. Among them, we all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, but God. Nevertheless, in spite of that, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Nevertheless, it's possible that they weren't saved. I'm granting that there are good men who say that. But I think he might be thinking of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who we know at the end of the book, these men are true believers. They're part of the Sanhedrin. And they were true believers. But I'd have to say, if it's... Speaking of them, their faith is weak at this point. Should we be surprised at that and, and, and then just say, well, their faith is weak, so they're not saved? And the next chapter we're going to see one of Jesus' uh, disciples is the devil and is going to re- betray him. And then Peter. Peter's not going to confess him before man. Peter's going to deny him. What about the rest of the disciples? They're going to run away too. All of their faith is weak. It is not until Pentecost that we would see the true power of the disciples revealed and their courage and their power and their fearlessness to proclaim the name of Christ and to stand and be willing to suffer and die for his name. But they're weak at this point, and that would describe these people as well. But I think this mirrors Isaiah 6. Yet there will be a tenth portion, like a terebinth or an oak that is burnt, whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. God always had his people. Even though there were people that didn't believe in the miracles of Jesus, there were believers in Israel that were truly saved. Sometimes we get the idea that the entire nation, nobody was saved at that time. No, 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 they were. There were real believers. God always has a remnant. No matter how bad things get. But there's a warning for us here, too, that regardless of saved or not, the principle is this, fear God and not man. Fear God and not man. They love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. The word approval here is the word glory. But used of human beings, it means praise or approval. They would rather have the praise of man rather than the praise of God. That is not the way we're to live. We are to live our lives so that everything that we do is, is that God would be pleased with what we do, regardless of what other people say. In fact, what will happen if you live for the praise of God, for his glory, for his approval, will you get the approval of man? No. Quite the opposite. You will be rejected. As he was rejected. It's the gospel. It's living out the gospel. This is peer pressure, by the way. Peer pressure isn't just something that happens in middle school. 
happens in high school and college and where you work and in the military and wherever. You know, right now we live in a time where on the left, stacked up against us is a, a godly philosophy at every level of our culture. It is all against what you believe. All of it. We must fear God rather than man and seek to be pleasing in his sight. So, some application. The story of Israel warns us to respond to the abundant revelation of Christ because it is abundant. Those who do not heed may be further hardened. Can Christians be hardened? Brothers and sisters, do not harden your heart. Do not get used to the darkness around you by fudging, by compromising. This is the time we have to live in the light. This is the time that we have to be strong, always, but now more than ever, as is all times. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you, you, you know, you, now you know what you need to know. You're culpable for this light today. And I urge you to believe it is a gracious invitation. He loves you and he wants you to accept him and to trust into him. Trust in him. But those who do not heed may be further hardened. Nevertheless, God is gracious to break through the blindness and the hardness of those whom we love those whom we pray for and those whom we witness to, we should always have hope. How many of you have had family members that you prayed for for many, many years, decades, come to know Christ at the end of their life? How many? Yeah, it happens. Don't give up in praying. Don't give up in, in, in witnessing. Don't give up in showing them that light. Don't, don't give up in loving them. Don't just say, oh, they're hard, and I'll just whatever. Nevertheless, God is a God of grace. This is the age of grace, and he wants to reach out to those who do not know. And we should always have hope. With that, I'm done with the first half of this message. And I ask you to pray with me. Father, my prayer, and we know that your earnest desire is that if there is anyone who is here in this room or watching online or listening in days ahead, whose hearts have been hard, that you would break that hardness, that you would pierce that darkness, you would show them your love, that they would turn to you and be restored and healed as new. Lord God, protect us from the evil days in which we live, that we not develop hard-heartedness and walk away from you. I pray, Lord God, that we would be humble, pliable, that we would be those who have humble and contrite hearts. If you need to break your church, break it. But God, do what you will, that the gospel would prevail. To your glory and in the name of Christ, we pray.